you're visiting with us this morning, one of the things that we try to do, it's not the only thing that we do as far as teaching the Bible, but we normally follow the practice of teaching through a particular section of Scripture, either an entire book or a chapter or something like that, and we try to preach systematically through it. One of the advantages to that is when you come to a thing like we're coming to today, uh, the pastor has nowhere to go but right there. And so we're going to preach about some hard stuff today. We're going to preach about some stuff where Jesus was pretty much getting in the face of his disciples and uh, trying to correct some mistakes on their part. And uh, hopefully you'll recognize that that is what's happening here. So we'll start reading in Mark chapter 9, verse 42. I think you'll notice that we're kind of continuing in a conversation that we started a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when he started talking to his disciples about this particular thing. So that tit- the title of that message a couple weeks ago was Greatness. And today, since we're continuing in the same topic, the same conversation he's having, uh, we're calling this Greatness Part 2 because it's just a continuation of the same thing. Mark chapter 9, verse number 42, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, rather than having two eyes, to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves. And have peace with one another. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every part of it. The the parts which cause us to want to shout for joy and the parts which make us want to uh, maybe sometimes hang our heads or think hard about things. And Lord, we come to one of those today. And so I pray that you would help and guide and direct. Fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord, to be as bold as I need to be as I speak through these things. Protect me from saying anything I ought not. But most of all, Lord, I pray that all of us would have ears to hear today that we would sit up and listen. We can picture the disciples sitting around in a circle as our Lord Jesus told them these things. We can picture their attention upon his every word. And I pray, Father, that we would have that same concentration today and that same uh, attentiveness to determine what it is that you're saying to us. Holy Spirit, be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this section is a continuation of the teaching that began up in verse number uh, 33, uh, when they came to Capernaum, and uh, Jesus asked them what they had been talking about on the way, and uh, they hung their heads in shame because they had been talking about which one would be the greatest. And so then he sat down with them, and he had a little conversation with them, uh, talking to them about how to be great, who's going to be great in the kingdom of God. Now, we know that this, even though, you know, in your Bible you may have different headings over various sections uh, that I read through here, and it may look like it's, it's different things. We, we know that it's all one conversation because of the transitional words and the transitional phrases that occur there. In verse number 38, we see, now John answered him. 
which indicates to us that John was, it was still part of the same conversation. In verse number 42, we see the word but, which is a transitional word uh, tying them together. Verse number 49, the word for. All these are transitional, transitional words or phrases that tell us we're still looking at the exact same conversation. Now, if we go to the book of Matthew, Matthew also records this, this uh, conversation for us. He adds a few things. There's a few things that Mark did not choose to add. And so the conversation was actually longer than what we see here in Mark. Matthew, for example, uh, tells us that at this time Jesus gave his wonderful parable of the lost sheep during this little discussion. And so the, 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 the passage of Scripture from which we get that wonderful old hymn, the 90 and 9, uh, came at this particular time. Uh, the discussion about dealing with a sinning brother or sister, from which we get much of our understanding of, uh, of the whole idea of church discipline and the methodology that we would employ in church discipline, took place at this particular time. You see that in, in Matthew. And then that wonderful parable of the unforgiving servant also took place here. So there's some things there, and you can read about those on your own in Matthew 18 if you want to. You'll see, same conversation, but just expanded to include some things that Mark didn't. Uh, I want us today to concentrate on what Mark had to say. And... Uh, that's going to be in here in verses 42 through 50. If you remember, clear back in the first half of this, it started in verse number 33. We learned that Jesus, uh, learned from Jesus that being great in his kingdom involved serving others. If you're going to be the greatest, you need to be servant of all. If you're going to be first of all, you need to be servant of all, last of all. So serving others. And we also learned that greatness in his kingdom involves serving with or alongside of others, verses 39 through 41. And we saw that he himself was the greatest example of these principles. Well, now he's going to add a couple of things to this uh, as we continue on. And so let's notice them. I want you to notice in verse number 42, greatness in the kingdom meant guarding against being the cause of stumbling in others. Greatness in the kingdom meant guarding against being the cause of stumbling in others. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus paints a particularly graphic picture here. Some of you, I know Maxine and Billy and Debbie, remember my grandmother. My grandmother, who was a uh, member of this church for just years and years and years, and was one of the sweetest little ladies that you would ever want to meet. One time my grandmother took me aside and she said, Billy, which would you rather do? Climb a mountain of maggots or swim a sea of snot. And to this day, I think about that and I think, where did that come from? But she was trying to present me with an impossible scenario. And so I, 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 as I'm thinking about this, I, I, the same kind of a question comes to my mind. Is there any good way, really, for a person to die? Would drowning be worse than, for example, being shot or being stabbed or being beheaded? as some are facing today. I don't know. Jesus painted this terrible picture, and, and, uh, at least in their culture of the day, drowning was certainly considered to be a horrendous way in which to die. Last weekend, Kathy and I have purchased kayaks, and last weekend we decided to go out on the water and kayak. Those of you who, you, none of you would know this about me, but I hate the water, really. I'm not very good at the water. We got out there, and I was, uh, I was uh, terrified. 
the entire time I was out there. She's swimming along, having the fine time. I was struggling. You know why? Because drowning is a terrible thing. And I didn't really want to experience that. So here is Jesus. Here is Jesus telling us that if we're going to cause somebody else to stumble, it would be better for us if a millstone, that's a huge, heavy stone, were wrapped around us and we were thrown into the sea. It's a terrible thought. But as one source says it, it reflects Jesus' views concerning those who cause others who believe in him to sin. It's a serious thing. It's a serious thing to cause others to stumble in their faith. And as Christians, we ought to avoid such always. As Christians, we need to subjugate our personal preferences and wants to those of others always. Especially those who might falter in their faith because of us. As Christians, we need to put others first in all things Always. Now think about these disciples. These disciples were bickering and arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus reminded them that such an attitude was exactly the opposite of the attitude they ought to have had. Others first. Others first. Others first. Always. Not me. That's not the only place in the New Testament where we see that. Uh, We recently studied Romans and we saw that. Quite a lot in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 14 and 15. Uh, Romans 14 uh, verse number 13 says, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Romans 15.1, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. He spoke even more strongly to the Corinthians. Paul did. He said uh, in 1 Corinthians 8.12, But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Now picture, Jesus, if you remember, is sitting here at this time. The disciples are sitting around him in a circle. He's sitting there and he's holding a child. We believe it probably was Peter's child. And so some people, when they read this and comment on it, they've, they've made the assumption that he was saying, don't offend a child. And he's, but, I, but I don't think for a minute that's what it was. I don't think little ones is referring just to a child. I think he's talking about any who are little in the faith, young in the faith, weak in the faith. We ought not to offend them. As a matter of fact, I think we could just apply it to everybody, and I think it would be true. Anybody, uh, we have to be careful about causing them to stumble in their faith. Hughes, in his commentary, calls this, quote, a terrifying statement of ministerial responsibility, end quote. But I don't think for a minute that's only talking to pastors. I don't think for a minute it's only talking to ministers. It's talking to all of us. All of us need to read and reread verse 42 again over and over until we got it in our mind and we recognize the gravity of this matter. Greatness in the kingdom of God includes not doing anything that would cause somebody else to stumble. Number two, look at verses 43 through 48, and you see that greatness in the kingdom of God also included dealing with anything that would cause stumbling in themselves. In these verses, he's no longer talking about how we deal with others. He's talking very personally about how we take care of things uh, within our own heart, within our own life. We must avoid causing others to stumble. But we must also make every effort to remove anything over which we ourselves might stumble. And he describes some various things here that might cause stumbling. And in each case, the solution is exactly the same. It's radical. Cut it off or cut it out. In verse number 43, he speaks of the hand being a source of stumbling. In verse 45, it's the foot. And in verse 47, it's the eye. He was describing the various ways in which we are tempted, or various sources of stumbling that we all face on a daily basis, and the answer is the same. Cut it off 
Cut it out of your life. One man said, whatever tempts a disciple to cling to this world's life must be removed, much as a surgeon amputates, amputates a gangrenous limb. I have a few frightening memories from my childhood. One particular memory I think of and I thought of as I was studying this was when I was quite young, sitting with my family in front of our black and white television set and watching an episode of The Outer Limits. How many of you remember the show The Outer Limits? That show scared me to death. I was just a little kid. There was one particular episode that I recall. I had to look it up to remember the name of it, but I just searched for one particular phrase and it came right up. So I was obviously not the only one who was traumatized by this. But the show was called The Mutant, and it was about a particular astronaut who landed on a planet and was subjected to some sort of radioactive rain, and it turned him into a superhuman being. And I don't remember anything else about what it caused in him, but I do remember one particular thing that happened to him when he got this radioactive rain on him. His eyes became these huge, bulbing, protruding, frog-like things as big as softballs sticking out of the front of his face. And I was terrified, scared the willies out of me. I didn't want to look at that. And so I covered my face as a little boy, and I said to my loving family who was seated around me, tell me when he's gone, I don't want to see that. And of course, a moment later, a still small voice from behind me, I will not name this particular member of my family, but a still small voice said, okay, Billy, he's gone. And of course, you know what happened. I opened my eyes, and there he was, full frame. (laughs) Scared the wits out of me. I remember another one, which is actually more applicable to our text today, and it was a movie called The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. Anybody remember that one? Man with the X-Ray Eyes with Ray Milland. And, of course, in that particular story, this doctor had discovered these interesting eye drops that, when applied into his eyes, would give him X-ray vision. And at first, it was kind of fun for him. He could see through walls, and he could see things, you know, and he was wandering around, and it was fun, but it had this progressive effect, and he suddenly could see deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and it drove him absolutely mad. And at the end of the movie, the scene that I remember, and it applies to this, is that he was uh, stumbling through the street, blindly clawing at his face and trying to figure out how he's going to solve this problem, and he walked by a tent revival. I think it was a tent revival. And uh, he heard some preaching and singing coming from within, and so he staggered into the room, and the preacher was preaching from this very text, and he was saying, If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out! And all he could hear in his his head was, pluck it out, pluck it out, pluck it out. And, of course, you know, the final scene was him grabbing his eyes. And the movie ends with these two bloody sockets staring at you. Ridiculous memories, I realize. But I think they illustrate a question that's probably on all our minds. Is that what Jesus meant? Did he really mean pluck your eyes out of your head? Did he really mean that we should physically mutilate ourselves in order to avoid sin? Was he saying that those who struggle with pornography, that's the solution? Pluck your eyes out of your head? Was he saying those whose hands do things that they ought not, cut them off? Was he saying if you find yourself going places you ought not, cut your feet off? Is that what Jesus was saying? Well, obviously no. Obviously no. One man explained it like this. He said, what Jesus is calling for is not physical mutilation, but spiritual mortification. The cutting off of harmful practices from one's life. The hand, foot, and eye encompass the totality of life. The hand symbolizes what we do, the foot, where we go, and the eye, what we see. And so Jesus was teaching that some of us need to perform some pretty radical surgery in order to avoid sin, but 
It's not the removal of body parts, but rather the removal of behaviors and the removal of practices. Even things that might be fine and good for somebody else, uh, if they might, if they cause us to be a, uh, if they cause us to sin, if they're a temptation for us, they're not good for us. And in such cases, Jesus said, we need to cut it out of our life instantly, radically, brutally, completely, turn it off, throw it away, don't go near it, drive home some other way, whatever it is. Get it out of your life, is what he said. J.C. Rowell, in his commentary on this, said, Let us walk in Job's steps. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. Let us remember the Apostle Paul. He says, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Warren Wiersbe said, What he is teaching is that sin is to the inner person what a cancerous tumor is to the body, and it must be dealt with drastically. And then to drive home the seriousness of his point and how serious sin is, he spent some time discussing the ultimate consequences of sin with these disciples. And he talked here about hell. Catherine Dangle, who was no doubt thinking about this very passage as she put pen to paper, wrote this about hell. Hell, the prison house of despair. Here are some things that won't be there. No flowers will bloom on the banks of hell. No beauties of nature we love so well. No comforts of home, music and song. No friendship of joy will be found in that throng. No children to brighten the long weary night. No love, nor peace, nor one ray of light. No blood-washed soul with face beaming bright. No loving smile in that region of night. No mercy, no pity, pardon, nor grace, no water. Oh God, what a terrible place. The pangs of the lost no human can tell. Not one moment's peace. There is no rest in hell. Hell, the prison house of despair. Here are some things that will be there. Fire and brimstone are there, we know, for God and his word hath told us so. Memory, remorse, suffering and pain, weeping and wailing, but all in vain. Blasphemers, swearers, haters of God, Christ rejecters while here on earth trod. Murderers, gamblers, drunkards and liars will have their part in the lake of fire. The filthy the vile, the cruel, and mean. What a horrible mob in hell will be seen. Yes, more than humans on earth can tell are torments and woes of eternal hell. Was Catherine Dangle accurate in her depiction of hell? If Jesus' words here are even remotely correct, and of course we know they are, then I think she was. The fact is, this wasn't the only time Jesus mentioned hell. He talked about it very clearly here, but it certainly wasn't the only time. Throughout his ministry, he preached more on hell than he did on heaven. And so let's notice what he said about it here. Just just one place. Let's notice what he said about it. He said, first of all, it's a horrible place. Hell is a horrible place. Hell is not a concept. Hell is not an exaggeration. Hell is a place, a real place, just like heaven is a real place. If hell is not real, then neither is heaven. It is a real place, just like our hometown is a real place. And according to Jesus here, it's a place of torment and torture and pain. Jesus described both external and internal torment here. He said it is a place of of, of external suffering. He used the word fire. Actually, he used that in verse 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, and 49. It's a place of fire. He used the Greek word Gehenna, which is translated in our English Bibles as Hell. And the word derives from two Greek words, or two Hebrew words actually, that mean the valley of Hinnom. 
It's a place south of Jerusalem where children were once sacrificed to the pagan god Molech. You can read about that in Second Chronicles and other places in the Old Testament. And then later, during the reforms of Josiah, which you can read about in Second Kings, the site became Jerusalem's refuse dump, where fires burned continuously to consume regular deposits of worm-infested garbage. In Jewish thought, the imagery of fire and worms vividly portrayed the place of future eternal punishment for the wicked. And so his use of that word would have instantly in their mind brought this thought of flames to the mind of the Jews. Hell is a place of fire. It is a place of flame. When in Luke chapter 16, Jesus recounted the story of the rich man and Lazarus, he described the rich man's words spoken from hell. And what did he say? He said, I am tormented in this flame. If we fast forward to the very last book in our Bibles, we find other references to hell, and they too describe it as a place of fire and flame and pain and external suffering. Revelation 20:15: whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's a horrible place. Hell is a horrible place for another reason. It's a place of internal pain. And I, and I think that's what we see when you, Jesus uses this description of worms here. Verses 44 and 46 and 48. We already saw that the valley of Hinnom was a place where garbage was dumped. And thereafter it was filled with worm-infested trash. And so if we're going to take that fire aspect of hell literally, and then we hear Jesus use the word worms, we have to consider that the worms are also real. It is entirely possible that there are literal worms in hell. I don't know if I'm prepared to go that far, but uh, it certainly makes sense to say it. But I do think the worms also just speak to us in a more general way of the internal torment of hell. A couple thoughts about that. Those in hell experience the internal pain of separation from God. Separation from God. Jesus, when he was on the cross, suffering all the agonies of the cross, cried out about only one thing. He didn't cry out about the nails, at least that we have recorded. He didn't cry out about the crown of thorns. He didn't cry out about uh, any of the agony or the mocking or the having to carry the thing through the streets. He didn't cry out about any of that. But there was one time when your sins and my sin were laid upon him, when, according to the Apostle Paul, he literally became sin for us. At that particular moment, God could no longer be in fellowship with him. God turned his face away from him. There was a separation. And that's when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, no doubt, the worst part of hell. The separation from God. And at that moment, that's what he suffered. There's another internal aspect to the torment of hell, and that's the pain of memory. We see that also. Well, if we would go over to Luke chapter 16 and notice his discussion of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, we would see there in the conversation with the rich man who is in hell at this time. We read this, but Abraham said, Son, speaking to him, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. Son, remember. You ought to underline those words in your Bible. Remember. Those in hell have their memories intact. 
They remember every opportunity they had to trust Christ. They remember every gospel invitation, the faces of every soul winner that pleaded with them to repent and turn their life over to Christ, the words to every hymn that they ever heard sung, and drew them almost to the cross, play over and over and over in their minds, Son, remember. And horror of horrors, both the external and the internal torments of hell last forever. It would be, it would be bad enough if they were just for a moment, if they were just temporary. But Jesus made it plain here that they last forever. The fire never goes out in hell. Verse 43 tells us that you actually will burn like asbestos burns. How does asbestos burn? doesn't. You put asbestos in a fire and take it out days later, it's still there. The actual word used in verse 43 is asbeston, from which we get our word asbestos. You burn. Forever and ever as asbestos burns. There are no fire extinguishers in verse in hell, in hell. Verse number 48, the Greek word there, pictures taking a flaming torch and placing it in water, extinguishing it. And he says there's no such thing there. In other words, there are no extinguishers in hell. It's never going to go out. The fire is going to burn forever. Forever. And the worms, he says, they don't die there. They never quit gnawing there. The very imagery of worms speaks of finality and hopelessness. We've all attended funerals. We've all stood next to a casket and we've seen a body lying there. And it looked so peaceful. Sometimes you look at a body lying in a casket and you think, I think I see it breathing. Sometimes you think it it could just sit up at any moment. They look so alive. But then you walk through the woods sometime and you come across some animal that has died and is laying there rotting and infested with worms. Do you have even the slightest hope that that animal is going to get out? It speaks of finality. It speaks of eternity. It speaks of hopelessness. We know in that case it's over and there's no coming back. Hell is a place where the external torment of flame and physical agony is not only real, but forever, never-ending, and eternal. And it's a place where the internal gnawing of memory will be all that is left to those who are eternally and forever and without hope separated from God forever. Jesus used these truths to remind his disciples of the terrible consequences of sin and to encourage them to deal drastically with it. It's better to suffer the loss of anything, he was saying, than to go to hell. I know there are some who try to water down the biblical truth about hell. There are some well-known preachers of large churches who have made a lot of money writing books that try to water down and explain away the reality of hell. They try to make it symbolic, or they just simply try to deny it altogether. Some apologize for it. I've heard preachers apologize for it. I remember a preacher preaching in this very pulpit some years back who did that apologized for hell. He mentioned the reality of hell. And then he said that even though he knew it to be true and he preached it as truth, he, quote, wished it wasn't so, unquote. He's apologizing for it. Sometime thereafter, I was at the Basics Conference. It was the year that D.A. Carson was there. D.A. Carson uh, was talking about this very thing. He was talking about apologizing for God's sense of justice and and as he talked about that very thing, he said, if you, have that, if you take that kind of approach to hell, he said, quote, God have mercy on your soul. Would you make yourself out to be more merciful than God? 
End quote. And so we dare not apologize. We dare not water it down. We dare not minimize. We dare not in any way change what the Bible says about hell. One man said there is no mercy in keeping back from people the subject of hell. Fearful and tremendous as it is, it ought to be pressed on everyone as one of the great truths of Christianity. Our loving Savior speaks frequently of it. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation often describes it. The servants of God in these days must not be ashamed of confessing their belief in it. Were there no boundless mercy in Christ for all who believe in him, we might well shrink from the awful topic. Were there no precious blood of Christ able to cleanse all sin, we might well keep silence about the wrath to come. But there is mercy for all who ask in Christ's name. There is a fountain open for all sin. So let us then boldly and unhesitatingly maintain that there is a hell and beseech people to flee from it before it is too late, knowing what it is to fear the Lord. Let us try to persuade men. It's not possible to say too much about Christ, but it is quite possible to say too little about hell. Well, so he has said two things here, has he not? He has said greatness in the kingdom of God means uh, not doing anything that would cause somebody else to stumble. Uh, Greatness in the kingdom of God means not doing anything or Dealing with things in your life that would cause you to stumble, recognizing the seriousness of that. One last thing, and I'm just going to mention this because, frankly, I don't understand it. Greatness in the kingdom of God means, I think, being a living sacrifice. Verses 49 through 50. And I say I think because this is one of the hardest passages of Scripture in the Bible. I read one commentator who said there are at least 15 different interpretations for these particular verses. Uh, verse 49 and 50, everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. What in the world was Jesus talking about there? That's a very difficult, difficult passage. However, I think, I think his use of the word fire at least partially refers back to what he's been saying about hell. And I think his use of the word salt no doubt ties into other times he used that imagery, such as in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, you, literally you and you alone, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So perhaps, and I'm going to leave this for you guys to study on your own, your sensible people, you can read your Bibles and come to a conclusion here, but perhaps Jesus was wrapping up this teachable moment with these glory-seeking disciples by reminding them of the stakes. This is about eternity. Reminding them that how they lived and behaved in front of others was a huge determining factor of the eternal destination of others. Perhaps he was saying, hell is real, men. And you guys are the salt of the earth. If you don't get it right, what's going to keep anybody out of hell? I don't know. I think that's kind of what he's saying. And then he says, have peace with one another. That's his final closing comment. And I think it related all the way back to their disagreement over greatness. They weren't getting along with each other. They weren't getting along with others. Verse number 38. Jesus wants believers to live in peace and harmony one with another. They were to subjugate their wants, their desires to the needs of others. They were to ruthlessly deal with sin in their lives so that neither themselves nor others may stumble and fall. And literally, they were to lay down their lives as living sacrifices because the stakes, after all, are eternal. So how can we apply this? How can we apply this? Well, I can think of obviously two 
applications. One is obviously if you are an unsaved person. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's tremendous application here, isn't there? Actually, there's just one application. Jesus said you must be born again. Emphasis on the word must. Must be born again. There is no, only, there is no other way to avoid hell. The only way is to repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior while you can. Once you're in hell, it will be too late. Read Luke chapter 16. It's too late. And so I ask you this morning, would you call on him today? It's not too late now. Now is the time of mercy. Now is the time that Jesus Christ stands offering salvation to all who will believe. It's not too late now. There is mercy in Jesus. There is salvation and hope in him. He suffered your hell on the cross of Calvary so that you would not have to. But he will not force it upon you. You have to receive the gift. You have to say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I believe that you died on a cross for me and I want that salvation. I accept that salvation. I believe Jesus. If you are saved, I think there's also one application that comes to mind. And that's just simply this, how you live, how you live affects not only you, but those around you, your choices, your words, your actions, the places you go, the activities in which you uh, partake have eternal significance. As a Christian, you can behave as these disciples were behaving. You can, you can, we, we can bicker. We can be glory-seeking as they were selfish. We can coast along oblivious to the eternal implications of all those around us who are watching us and our testimony. Or we can be salt to a dying world. You can live life caring and sacrificing for others so that they might come to Christ. You can get a glimpse of hell. And we need to get a glimpse of hell. We need to see it. And know from that glimpse that nothing else matters but keeping everybody we can out of it.